Dan Cohen is a truly interdisciplinary scholar. His work in the field of humanities, specifically Victorian intellectual history and the history of mathematics, has overlapped with his deep interest in technologies for new media as director of the Roy Rosenzweig Center for History and New Media at George Mason University. The center that Dan directs is one of the best places to find innovation for scholarly work. They've developed open source software for researchers to collect sources digitally, opening up new frontiers for academic research, harnessing the power of the web. The Harvard Library Innovation Lab's David Weinberger spoke with Dan by Skype recently about what lies ahead for scholarly research using technology. Dan, a lot of, a lot of people are familiar with uh, a very uh, significant project that you are deeply involved with, Zotero. What was the impetus behind doing Zotero? Well, Zotero was part of a set of activities here at the Center for History and New Media. And I think together, uh, a lot of us here were um, interested in doing more with the other productions of um, scholars that we have a lot of, I guess, what I would call end state or polished or cooked sources, um, things like articles and books that sit on library shelves. There's also really interesting elements of scholarship, productions of scholarship, which are things like personal collections. So every time I go to an archive, I usually take photographs of, of archival materials or uh, older professors might have Xerox copies of, of documents that they've annotated. Um, we organize these things into folders. We act on them in, in, you know, with intellectual work, real intellectual work, where we put together bibliographies and sources that we're going to look into greater depth and then produce out of that some kind of finished product, some primary source of scholarship, often what's called secondary literature, but really is most scholars consider to be their primary activity is producing these end state things, which may include references to the secondary productions, these bibliographic sources or that uh, stuffed filing cabinet of your um, materials that you used for your book. We make reference to those in footnotes. We make reference to them in a bibliography, but um, they in themselves, I think, are actually rather interesting creatures. You know, when I was in graduate school uh, in history, and I have a very traditional uh, training in history, the most important moments weren't actually reading a book or an article that was considered seminal in, in my field, Victorian intellectual history. But it's actually the moments where, you know, your dissertation advisor leans over and gives you the kind of folk wisdom of the field where, for instance, my, my advisor, Frank Turner, uh, the Victorianist, you know, he said, oh, you know, if you really want to study Victorian religion and science, you should go to these five archives and look at these 10 people. And here's a bibliography that uh, I made for one of my books. Why don't you look through that and see if there are any interesting sources on that? So there's this um, sort of back channel that's never really been surfaced that I think is really interesting when you look at the overall production and, and sort of workflow and life cycle of scholarship. Here at the center, we had a, um, a product, if you want to call it that, called Scribe, which was uh, kind of a FileMaker-based uh, database, sort of an EndNote clone, I suppose you could call it that, um, in the early part of the last decade um, that was put together by Elena Roslogova, who was our webmaster here at CHM. And we were sort of looking at an upgrade cycle on that. And at the same time, I was looking at what was going on with Mozilla um, and the legacy of Netscape and the open source legacy of the Netscape browser, which, uh, you know, of course, became 
Mozilla. And then Mozilla decided that it was kind of bloated and they wanted to, to make something a little bit lighter. And they came out with this thing that eventually was called Firefox. And what I noticed all along with that project was that from the start, Firefox was extensible. Um, it had a plugin architecture. It, because it was open source, you could also get under the hood and look at everything involved with it. And so we went through a thought process, not just me, but others here at the center, um, of, of looking at what we could do if we took Scribe and stuck it in the browser, which is, after all, where, by the time we were starting to conceive this in, in 2005, it was where we were doing all of our research. And we felt that everyone would be doing their research in, in the web browser, that traditional modes of, of going to the library first were going away. Uh, people were looking at online databases. Um, and they wanted to have that experience of making that filing cabinet, but have it within the web browser. So that was sort of the intellectual start of the project is that if we were able to put something like a reference manager, which I think is a really a, a kind of lousy name, it, you know, you just think about it as something that makes your, your bibliography and your footnotes. But we really saw it as a research platform. And that's how I like to talk about Zotero is that it's a research platform that lives in the web space. It also lives on your desktop. And I think we were ahead of the curve in figuring out that people like stuff that interacted with the web, but also that lived on their own machines. And so we took that idea and said, what if we were able to have a piece of software that captured scholarly objects like manuscripts and articles and letters and film from the web, um, gave you the ability to organize it? Um, yes, also gave you the ability to create footnotes and, and bibliography. But then in a second, I think, more interesting phase, then be able to share those things that normally would have been hidden in your office with other people around the world. And that's where Zotero 2.0 came from with its social component. And so I think the project has sort of gone up from there, but always with that original idea that it was um, rather interesting to Think about what you might be able to do if you were to, to aggregate and make social these products of scholarship, these secondary products that were often just um, communicated through, again, the dissertation director leaning over and whispering in your ear what the, the critical uh, uh, objects were to look at. One of the consequences of the erasing or at least vastly diminishing of the line between the private and the public mm -hmm. uh, Yes. And so things that we thought were only of private value actually turn out to have tremendous public or maybe more accurately social value. That's right. They do. And um, I, I think in some sense, this is really about the, um, I hate to put it in business terms, but it's really about the efficiency of the academy. I mean, you know, I lucked out that I was in a graduate school where I had very involved advisors. There are people around the world, there are independent scholars who Zotero serves, there are Others who um, are, are, you know, new, let's say, in Victorian intellectual history, and where, where, where do they go first? Really, the only things that they could look at were um, more stodgy, inert works like the American Historical Association's Guide to Historical Literature, which is a set of giant red volumes that sits in the reference part of your library. It's very expensive. You can't buy a personal copy of it. It's many hundreds of dollars. And uh, what this was, was, you know, sort of once a decade, the AHA would go to uh, leading scholars and say, okay, what are the 10 most important books in your field? And can you write a short annotation about why those are important? And those would be collated and put together. And then eventually it would come out. By the time it came out, it was already dated because so much scholarship uh, had been published um, in the interim. So you take that book, and now what you've got with something like Zotero is the ability to operationalize that live in real time with a much greater base of scholars and in a much broader 
environment, I think really an ecology of scholarship. And to me, that's really exciting. I think you can do really terrific things beyond just, I guess, the metrics of who's reading the most things. Um, that's sort of interesting. But um, I think what something like Zotero 2.0 does is also it brings, for instance, scholars in different fields together, which often doesn't happen in the academy. Um, everyone subscribes to their little journal in their field. Um, so I look at things like Victorian studies. There are people who actually my scholarship abuts to, people in, for instance, mathematics. Um, I've written a book on history of math, so I'm interested in sort of talking to mathematicians as well who are interested in pure mathematics. Um, I, I uh, do scholarship that is in many ways also about the history of religion and religious thought. And so I want to be able to communicate with them. And as you think about that, really every scholarship, uh, every work of scholarship is in some sense interdisciplinary. And so having tools that live online, that live in a social space, allows others with no barriers to entry to come in and say, oh, I really like the stuff that Dan's put online. Maybe I'll enhance that with some of the bibliographic information I've got. Or it allows, and I think this is really interesting from the, the resource provider side of things, libraries and archives to actually come into that space and say, hey, we just digitized this collection. It may be of interest to you, 100 people which we're, you know, that we are finding in this online group um, that is coordinated through the Zotero mothership. Um, so there's many ways that we can, again, enhance the efficiency and the communication and the social aspect of scholarship that in a prior life, in a pre-digital life, was, was just happening at the kind of level of, of uh, oral history or oral communication. I, I should just interject that librarians uh, traditionally have put together research guides and study guides, which also is a way, obviously, of building compilations and is a, a traditional role for librarians. Right. And I think it's interesting to think about what they could do um, – in a sort of federated way, right? A lot of those um, occurred at the local level, at the individual library level, but um, you can imagine those questions spanning several libraries. Um, and I think that's exciting as well. I think libraries becoming social is, is something that's a very important development. Much of uh, the value that you just talked about that uh, Zotero brings is, a part of it is a lateral, uh, that is people connecting with other people in related or or even even dissimilar fields, but much of it also is uh, let's say temporal that um, we are able to see work earlier in the process and right. to gain value from you know sort of a hastily scribbled list of possible sources you might want to look at that list may not bear the weight of being published of being right. put forth in a study guide but nevertheless has tremendous value. In the, tradi the traditional vision of libraries is of uh, sort of massive containers of works that are fully at the end of their editing and curation process. It's at least interesting to think about what this might mean for libraries. But it also um, – if in fact the weight and work of scholarship is becoming socialized far earlier in the process rather than just the moment of publication – um, if we're able to see one another's work and to learn from the metadata that we're generating along the way, that's a, that's a pretty fundamental shift in in the rhythm and nature of scholarship. Well, it sure is, and and I should say that um, you know, looking at how people use uh, Zotero, you know, a lot of scholars don't want to expose their Zotero collection. So, we have a an option in the preference setting, um, which is um, you know, you have to opt in, you have to turn on the sharing function, and um, for a lot of scholars, I think they're still in a very traditional mode that I think this is particularly true in the humanities, which has had a, 
a long legacy of, uh, I guess, solitary confinement, if you want to call it that. They consider their research sources to be theirs. They don't like to show anything that's half finished. Um, you know, I think, David, you and I are kind of unusual in that we let it all hang out a bit um, in places like our blogs. And But there are a lot of scholars who are really fearful of exposing what they're working on before it's a finished product. Um, I think a lot of these people have perhaps inflated views of, of um, you know, I guess the worth of their scholarship or the potential that someone might come along and steal the idea. Um, you know, I just think that's um, a red herring. And uh, I think actually there's a lot to, to be gained by being in the social space to find collaborators. But it, it is very new. And I think we're part of a very long process. Um, you know, in my field in history, if you look at the major journals, only about 3% of articles are co-authored. Um, it's really a pretty remarkable stat if you think about it. I mean, can you imagine the sciences? Probably every, virtually every article in, in most sciences are, are at this point co-authored. Well, many but authors, the, dozens of authors, yeah. Yeah, but frequently they're co-authored in inflated ways. Yeah, uh, there, so there is, is a, you know, there's a swing <laughs> in the other direction as well. Well, what's interesting, though, is, um, you know, I think about sort of my new, my, let's say, newer field or the other hat I wear in digital humanities. I think there's a recognition of, of that this kind of work um, actually involves people that are in, on the science side. You know, the person who runs the computers at... Um, Fermilab or, or something like that, right, will often get credited for being a co-author where they're part of the infrastructure, right? Whereas in the humanities, we've never co-authored, let's say, a librarian who's been very helpful with collating sources or telling a scholar where things are. We might recognize them with a nice thank you note in the introduction, but that hasn't been part of the process. But I think as we get to a phase where even scholarship in pretty traditional fields like history becomes hard to do, without um, large-scale collaborations. If you're the presidential historian who has to sort through 40,000 emails in the Clinton White House, and so you need someone who's proficient in information retrieval or text mining or visualization, you, you get into a space that the digital humanities is in now, which where you realize that you need a lot of different people collaborating on many levels, maybe only one of whom will write some final entity that is called an article that has an author but involves many more people in the way that a science lab does. When I left academics many, many, uh, let's say many, I think that's the right number of many, many <laughs> years ago, um, I was in humanities. Right. And I, was, and I went, into, went, into a, went into business. I was hired by a business. I was shocked to find out, at least in my experience, that the business environment was way more collaborative than the humanities departments that I had been in. Mm -hmm. um, everybody working towards a common goal and so forth in the business. Whereas, uh, yes, I'm in humanities, in my experience, you're absolutely right. We, it's a very solitary, a very solitary life and frequently when it comes to, to scholarship. And um, it's somewhat puzzling, at least ironic and, and certainly puzzling about uh, why that's so. Um, right. I, well, I, I, have a, I have a theory as an intellectual historian. <laughs> so do I. Your theory first. <laughs> it's probably pretty similar to, to your philosophical well, we'll theory see. on it. Yeah. Uh, I just think that there's a, um, a sort of cult of genius that uh, I think we all fancy that we're the smartest people in the room. And, um, you know, since the Romantic era, we've got this uh, um, vision that uh, we, you know, enter our cubicle and emerge with great ideas that, that no one has thought about before. And um, I think the reward structures in the humanities um, have sort of uh, calcified those those notions. It's 
harder to get credit um, for collaborative work. Um, you get sort of 50% credit or 33% credit or what have you. You know, I, I think it's silly. I think a, a lot of the work that goes on in the academy would really be enhanced, I think, on the humanity side of the academy um, if it was done in a collaborative way because people just have different skills and different thoughts. And, and um, I think one of the great things about working at a center like CHM is we've got dozens of people sitting around um, with, with different skills and thoughts. And, um, you know, I've, I've come to a much lesser assessment of my own intelligence and I know I have weaknesses in various areas. And so you need to kind of supplement that by talking with others. What's your theory? <laughs> well, first of all, I, that's sounds exactly right. That I think that part of it is that in uh, some of the humanities, there's no objective correlate. Uh, so you can't prove that you were right. And so you are in a constant battle of wills in order to assert that you were, that what mm -hmm. you're saying is right and an act of genius and deserving the respect of others and so forth. And, and so without that objective correlate, it, it felt more like a war of all against all at its worst. I mean, at, at its best, it's very different than that. Mm -hmm. So I, I, you and I are both interested in um, the value that one particular type of indirect work of scholarship, let's yes. say, um, you better work for it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't know. So, uh, syllabus, <laughs> you know, uh, syllabi. And I've been yeah. shocked in, in sort of poking around the edges of this at the fact that many, many professors don't want their, their syllabi made public. It, it, right. it's, it just seems so counterintuitive <laughs> to me. You know, I think academics are a little bit too thin skinned, you know, they're, they're worried that people will find yeah, out. Yeah, I'm taking that personal. <laughs> You're talking about me and I resent it, Dan. Um, no, there's there's many thick-skinned academics as well, but uh, but you know, look, I, it's it's a very exposed realm being up there and teaching and worrying about what others might think about your methods and your assignments and um, and frankly, you know, I think there's been some some aspects of the current political environment that might make you think uh, there are others sort of peeking in at what people are teaching in in the classroom and and uh, so no, I really do I do get some of that, um, but what I think the two of us agree on is that it is this amazing sort of cache of, of intellectual work, indirect, perhaps intellectual work where a syllabus is really an act of deciding really at its core of what's important, what's important to communicate. What are the important works um, that should be taught? Um, what shouldn't be taught? What should be omitted um, in history? You know, there's a lot of thought about things like periodization, how we sort of break up the chronology of history so there's there's real work there that goes on that you can actually trace over time. And, uh, you know, as you may know, and we've discussed, you know, I was very interested in this a decade ago and uh, saw that Google was coming out with a, an API that gave access to their database, which is much smaller than of uh, web pages, their cached web pages. And um, they had a very liberal uh, API in 2002 when it came out and actually were very nice to me. I, I told them I was doing an academic research project and they gave me a, a key to their API that gave me many more um, calls per day than the average user. And I used that to um, write a little bit of code. I've sort of shared at this point the uh, metadata to 1.45 million syllabi. Well, what, sort of, what sort of metadata? Well, so it includes um, the obviously the URL of the uh, the web address of the the syllabus, which from you can do a reverse lookup on the .edu domain names to find the um, the university or college that the syllabus was taught at. Um, the it includes the date, um, so you can actually look at 
the same syllabus from one professor over seven and a half years and see how that changes. So there are very significant changes that happen, even in something as dodgy as history. Um, for instance, there's been a, uh, a real rise in the use of non-textual evidence uh, in, in syllabi. So um, images, um, sound, sound studies is very big. Material culture is another area that's been added. So you can track those changes over time. Um, you can look within departments and see what departments are are um, changing the mix of their syllabi in um, anticipation of trends or in reaction to events. So, um, for instance, you'll, you can track after 9-11 in this syllabus database the rise of much stronger interest in Middle Eastern history, um, in Arabic uh, language instruction. So there's lots of things you can actually do with it. Um, I've written a paper, you can get all this at dancohen.org, but uh, I wrote a paper on American history instruction and looked at some trends um, using regular expressions. It's, it's um, relatively trivial to extract uh, book titles from uh, the texts of these syllabi. And you can extract out what, what books are assigned, um, what books are not assigned, what textbooks are used. The, you can then go look at those textbooks and look at the orientation of them. For one project I looked at, I think around uh, seven or 800 U.S. History 101 courses, um, a big chunk of the courses that are taught uh, nationwide in uh, universities, probably covering hundreds of thousands of students. And um, I sort of collated this stuff, extracted some debt data, and wrote a piece that was published in the Journal of American History on uh, trends in those, uh, in those syllabi. Um, so just briefly, um, you know, one of the things I found was that uh, instructors through again, through the sort of implicit uh, aspect of cr the creation of the syllabus, very clearly were adding uh, secondary texts on African-American history because they felt that the textbooks didn't adequately cover the subject. So you'd see a lot of assignments of, like, for instance, the, the biography of Malcolm X showed up in many of these syllabi. So there was a feeling that, that maybe there was an inadequacy to, to some of these standard textbooks. There are things like that that you can do with syllabi, um, both at the aggregate level and also at the level of anomalies. So it's very interesting to pull out syllabi. You can do comparisons, both algorithmic and also visual comparisons of syllabi and see um, you know, syllabi that stand out. Another thing that I did is look at click-through rates, which is, of course, the same thing that Google does. When you click on a result, they view that in some sense behind the scenes as a, a metric, as a kind of vote that that links seem to be of interest to you in response to your search query. You know, I kept a database of um, click-throughs and used that a couple of times over the past decade to post the most popular uh, history and philosophy syllabi. You look at them, they really are, in some sense, the platonic form of, of a particular syllabus. In some sense, I think that's really interesting. I got great responses from people who made the list. Some of them, you know, the philosophy top philosophy syllabus was looked at, um, I think, 6,500 times. And a lot of those times, I can tell you anecdotally, are other professors poking around, you know, frantically before the semester begins to create their own syllabus and, uh, and trying to find really good representative syllabi and then basically cribbing notes from those syllabi. And so in some sense, that's a form of flattery. And I think the people who made, made those top lists, um, you know, I received three emails from those two lists of people saying, hey, thanks, you know, this is something that's really interesting. I'm glad that my pedagogy is being credited or validated in this way. And, um, you know, I just think that's the tip of the iceberg. I'm interested to see what others might do with this database. Have you gotten requests to uh, um, take down syllabi? 
Uh, no, surprisingly, I thought I would get a bunch of those, and uh, I have not received a single one. So that's good. It seems like good news to me. I think people have seen it, and um, it's good to know that there aren't a bunch of professors calling me angrily saying, you know, take down my 2002 syllabus. I don't want anyone to, to see it. Um, and after all, these were syllabi which were put on the web in open places um, with the expectation that not only students but others would see them. So I think maybe with that in mind, maybe they'll all stay in there, and I hope it will be a good corpus um, for the future. I'd love to grow it and build upon it. Uh, I, w- I would love for it to become an ordinary part of teaching that your syllabus uh, becomes public. It seems such a waste that that's not the case. Don't allow exceptions where whatever. I can't imagine what the reasons are. Well, I can imagine a few, but to have that be the default action for syllabi, I think would be right. really helpful for the reasons right. that for all the uses that you've pointed to, plus the open-ended uses that this sort of data lends itself to. A corpus like this you really can't anticipate. I cannot anticipate the ways in which it will be used. That's, I think, what's really interesting. I think it's what's interesting about open data um, and APIs is that it just gives a kind of flexibility and a, a basis for new kinds of tools and services um, that libraries libraries can use, that um, others can use to create search tools, um, to do studies on. You know, if I knew ahead of time the way in which this would be used, I, you know, I would do it myself. But I think by releasing it, in an open fashion, uh, hopefully others will come up with things that amaze us. Yes, I think that is one of the really important transformations that you not only are pointing to, but are instantiating that um, the notion that information, ideas, data, metadata, all that has value in the very fact that we are unable to anticipate what its uses are. And that is a crucial insight. Oh, Dan, thank you so much for your just astoundingly useful projects and for your imagination and for uh, talking with me this morning. It's great to talk to you, David. Thanks. Dan Cohen is a scholar, historian, and director of the Roy Rosenzweig Center for History and New Media at George Mason University. This podcast was brought to you by the Harvard Library Innovation Lab at Harvard Law School. We are interviewing a number of innovators, scholars, and publishers about the future of the written word this season. If you like this episode, why not follow along with us at librarylab.law.harvard.edu, where you can find out more about our work, including information on today's guest. You can join the discussion and share this podcast with others. This show was produced by me, Daniel Dennis-Jones, and David Weinberger, with the support of the Harvard Law School. 